Welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is John Samples. I'm vice president and publisher here at Cato. I'd like to begin with just an administrative matter. I'd like to ask everyone to please turn off their cell phones so that we can have a, a peaceful conversation throughout the afternoon. Um, in particular, I'd like to welcome you to a book forum today on the Cato Institute book, The Tyranny of Silence, which is published this week. I would like to add that we are proud to be the English language publisher for this work, which originally appeared in Danish. And indeed, this work, as we shall hear, grew out of events in Denmark in 2005 and thereafter. Those events, the publishing of cartoons that offended some, raised profound questions about freedom of speech and liberalism broadly understood. Our author today has dealt with those questions direct, deeply and humanely in this book. And as I say, Cato is very proud to have published it. In particular at Cato, I would like to uh, thank John Allison, our CEO, who is a big supporter of publishing this book, David Bowes, and an early editor working on this, Jason Kuznicki. We are departing a little bit from our usual format of book forums here at Cato. If you come here, you'll, you'll notice that. Uh, I thought it might be interesting to have a leading American defender of free speech talk with Fleming Rose about his book. Jonathan Rauch graciously accepted our invitation to participate, and so we are going to have a conversation about the tyranny of silence. Let me begin by introducing our participants, and then after they talk for a bit, I will return for the question and answer session uh, in a, about 40 minutes or so. Fleming Rose is the author of The Tyranny of Silence. From 1990 to 96, he was the Moscow correspondent for the newspaper Berlinska. Uh, between 1996 and 1999, he was that newspaper's correspondent here in Washington, DC. In 1999, he became Moscow uh, correspondent for Julian Posten, and in April 2004 was named its cultural editor from which he made the decision to publish these cartoons. Since 2010, he has been the paper's foreign affairs editor. Jonathan Rauch, a contributing editor at National Journal and The Atlantic, is senior fellow in governance study at the Brookings Institution and is the author of several books and many articles on public policy, culture, and economics. He is the winner of the 2005 National Magazine Award for Columns and Commentary and the 2010 National Headliner Award for Magazine Columns. His latest book is the expanded edition of a Cato Institute book, which we're also proud to have published, Kindly Inquisitors, The New Attacks on Free Thought. Previously to that, he published Gay Marriage, Why It Is Good for Gays, Good for Straits, and Good for America, published in 2004 by Times Books. Gentlemen, we look forward to hearing your conversation. Thank you, John. <laughs> Thank you all for being here. It is indeed a privilege to sit on the same dais with Fleming Rose, who is, although he would deny it, I think you'll know in an hour why I regard him as a genuine hero, a remarkable man who has written a remarkable book. Um, it's really an extraordinary read. I, I can't recommend this book strongly enough because it's not only, it's got very good theory on the importance of free speech and on what's going on in Europe, but it's also a person's journey of discovery, uh, finding out in a very immediate way why these things matter, going to the core of some very dark truths in Europe and also in America. 
Um, most of you probably know something about what happened in 2005, uh, but I thought we'd just begin there with at least a brief recap. As Fleming's book does, um, this begins with self-censorship that predates the Mohammed cartoons, right? It involves a children's book. Yes, uh, in, in the middle of September 2005, um, a very famous uh, Danish children's writer, his name is called Blutken, um, he went public uh, to the Danish news service um, saying that I'm writing a children's book about the life of the Prophet Muhammad. And in children's book, you do need illustrations of the main character. Uh, but I have problems founding an illustrator for this book. And according to Mr. Blutken, uh, three illustrators turned down this offer, as far as I remember. And the one who finally said yes insisted on anonymity, which is a form of self-censorship. Um, out of fear, you do, want, you do not want to appear under your own name when you do something. And he was specifically referring to the fate of uh, Salman Rushdie, uh, who received a fatwa from Ayatollah Khomeini in 1989 because of a few pages in the satanic verses. But he was also referring to the fate of Theo van Gogh, a Dutch filmmaker who was killed in Amsterdam almost exactly 10 years ago uh, because he had made a movie that a young Muslim, a young Dutch Muslim, found had offended his God. Uh, but we had only called Blutken's word in the beginning. He was the only source to this story. So, um, uh, um, uh, and it was a front page story in Denmark. And then we had a following up discussion at the paper. How can we follow up on this story? And then this idea came up. Why don't we invite illustrators or cartoonists uh, to draw the Prophet Muhammad uh, as they see him, so we can see if there is censorship. And, and there is this fundamental journalistic pr principle, don't tell it, show it. So they would have to do, you know, using their medium to, uh, to answer this challenge. And you can also see from the drawings up there that, that they are very different, um, very diverse. They are not all, in fact, depicting the Prophet Muhammad. Some of them are. Uh, one especially that is now um, very famous. Um, <clears throat> so, so, uh, so because we didn't have a, a confirmation in the beginning, we in fact hold the cartoons for two weeks. We didn't publish them immediately. Uh, and over the course of those two weeks, um, we, we were confronted with, I think, five or six other examples pointing to the problem of self-censorship when dealing with uh, Islam. One was uh, Tate Gallery in London. They removed uh, an installation out of fear for you know, possible uh, aggressive reactions among Muslims in the UK. Uh, a publishing house um, uh, deleted a sentence in an essay by Ayan Hirschi. Ali, this uh, Somalia-born former Dutch politician. And, who and, and given, these, given yeah. these precedents, did your paper expect trouble? when you publish this page? No, no. I mean, no one could anticipate. And all, I think all the people who today say, why, how stupid can you be? You mm -hmm. must have expected these kind of reactions. I think it's, it's, it's what we call an after-rationalization uh, in Danish. Uh, in fact, there had been published cartoons of the Prophet before this, 
but it didn't cause this kind of, uh, of outrage and reaction. And I think the reason why it became such an explosive event four months later was partly coincidence. You know, there, there, there were political situations in, in some Islamic countries where those in power could use this case in order to promote themselves as, you know, the true defenders of, of their faith. So often the case with, with censorship and protest, isn't it? So, yeah, initially it's an interesting wrinkle. The initial reaction was not all that large. No. I, you know, the day of the publication, I received one phone call from a newspaper vendor uh, to the west of Copenhagen, and he complained and said they had had a discussion about it at the mosque that Friday, and that he didn't want to sell my newspaper anymore. But, you know, I received this call uh, people, well, uh, readers calling in and complaining about this and that. So I didn't, I didn't take especially notice. Um. So in 2006, <clears throat> some people begin going around the world showing purported cartoons, which in fact were phony, stirring up trouble. We begin to see protests, then we begin to see deaths. How many, do we know how many people died in those series of protests over these cartoons? I think the estimation is around 200. Uh, the vast majority in Nigeria uh, and the interference, I mean, the, the important thing about Nigeria is, in fact, that clashes between Christians and Muslims had been going on for about, at least since 2000, when this happened. So this was, you know, it was just one event in a chain of events that had to do with clashes between Christians and, and Muslims. We'll come back to the violence in your lives and, and your life and Kurt Westergaard's life. Um, but let's talk for a minute about how your reading of the situation developed. This book is the title, which is wonderful, actually, made me think, The Tyranny of Silence. Um, the idea here is that a lot of what's going on is not state censorship. Um, it's self-censorship, and that that can be just as important. You make an important, as you call it, I quote, the important distinction between self-censorship and good manners. What do you tell people who say, Look, what do you expect to happen when you're that obnoxious? Uh, no, I, 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 yes, my, my, my distinction between good manners and self-censorship is basically that, you know, good manners is something that we choose out of our free will. I mean, I like when you talk nice to me and I try to, to talk nice to you. Um, and, and I behave when I go to a restaurant. I do not try to destroy, you know, public order and things like that. But self-censorship is when you, when, when you say, I would like to say this, I would like to make this painting or this movie and write this book, but I'm not doing it because I'm afraid of the consequences. To me, that is self-censorship, and it has nothing to do with good manners um, uh, because it's driven by fear, not about a wish to be polite. How prevalent is it now in Denmark, in Europe, elsewhere? I, I think it's it's getting worse, um, and and uh, you know a lot of people back then thought that we had made up this situation, that we provoked it, and nothing would have happened if it hadn't been for, we would not have this kind of situation. But but I think it's clear to everybody now that that we do have you know cartoon crises uh, every now and then, where where where, and 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 it has to do with with, uh, you know, some fundamental factors that, ha that have changed our societies. And, and the one is 
you know, migration, the fact that people are moving across borders in numbers never seen before in the history of mankind, which means that not only the United States, you, you, you have this experience already, but, but basically any society in the world is getting more multicultural, multi-ethnic and multi-religious. We are getting more and more diverse. Um, and on the other hand, you have technology, uh, the fact that what is being published in a newspaper in a small country in a language that very few people in fact can read is immediately published everywhere and compared to say let's say 50 years ago when in a Pakistani Afghan, Afghan, Afghanistan village people would through their whole life maybe encounter only 50 or 200 people and they would not know what was going on 50 kilometers away. Now they know what is going on 5,000 kilometers away. And even though they cannot read and write, they react politically to what is happening, let's say, in, uh, in, in, in Denmark. And, and the question is, you know, how do we, how do we handle this new diversity? Uh, and my point is that with growing diversity in terms of religion, ethnicity, and culture, you will, you will also have to accept more diversity when it comes to ways of expressing ourselves. And the irony, I think, is that a lot of people who support a multicultural society, they do not support the same diversity when it comes to speech. And I think that's a paradox. Uh, and and uh, quite often they cannot see it themselves. Well, they would argue that we can't live to e with each other if we constantly offend each other, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, one of the factors you mentioned that's particularly interesting, you're not politically naive, but, but you refer to the tyranny of silence. This is one of a lot of very good quotations about it as a society in which grievance fundamentalism is consistently practiced, where nothing meaningful can be uttered since any speech of any sort may potentially be characterized as offensive to some person or group. What is grievance fundamentalism and to what extent is it driving this phenomenon? I think it's... It's, um, it's, it's, it's a consequence of the erosion of the very important distinction between speech and action, between words and deeds. A lot, an increasing number of people believe that words can be as uh, criminal as deeds. Um, and, and, and I think the irony is that, that this is, in fact, the way the Christian church thought about these issues before the Enlightenment. That when you, when you criticized the church or doctrine, verbally it was being perceived as a physical attack on the church, and therefore you could be condemned to death. Um, but I've, I think the issue is, you know, it's also because people want harmony, they don't want conflict. Uh, they believe that we, if we, if we uh, you know, if we are quiet, if we don't talk about things that, uh, that bothers, bothers us, then we will, then we will keep the, uh, the, the, the peace, but I don't believe so. Uh, and I think basically, you know, there are two ways to go. You can say, if you respect my taboo, I respect yours. If you do not criticize what is sensitive to me, I will not criticize what is sensitive to you. If Holocaust denial is a criminal offense, as it is in many European countries, publication of cartoons like these should also be a criminal offense. And if that's the case, then you would also need not to publish cartoons of other religions, uh, uh, making fun of other religions and prophets. And if you do that with, with religion, you would also have to do the same with, with non-believers. 
a lot of people like Karl Marx or, uh, or Milton Friedman or Adam Smith, so then we are not allowed to make fun of them as well. And uh, I basically believe, you know, this is the road to the title uh, of my book, A Tyranny of Silence, where, where you are not able to say anything that not will be offensive to somebody. And I, I, I make the point that, that, you know, in a democracy, you have many rights, the right to free speech, to freedom of religion, freedom of assembly, you have a right to vote, freedom of movement. But I think the only right you should not have in a democracy is a right not to be offended. That we have to pay, you know, the price we have to pay for living in this nice, free, open societies is that there are people who from time to time will say something we find offensive. And that is growing, that risk is growing with diversity. Your book has a theoretical backbone which I think makes it unusual. Um, you point out something that, to back up a bit, um, impelled me to write Kindly Inquisitors, or begin writing it in 1989. This, of course, was the Ayatollah Khomeini's fatwa against Salman Rushdie, the first time, I think, in all of human history when a sovereign state issued a global murder warrant against an individual human being uh, anywhere in the world, forever based on something that that person had said and written. Mm -hmm. That was astonishing. But at the time, what was even more astonishing to me and what set me off writing Kindly Inquisitors yeah. um, was that the reaction for many in the West was that, well, you know, it's certainly bad to threaten Salman Rushdie with murder, but it's equally bad for him to have written this book. He's the perpetrator, in a way, and offended Muslims are victims. Mm -hmm. um, that comes back very strongly. In the cartoon crisis, um, you have a couple of sentences about it. Vivid. Thus, perpetrators were transformed into victims, victims into perpetrators. The view that the newspaper and I would be to blame if there were a terrorist attack is something that you refer to. It was by no means an uncommon charge. What is this topsy-turvy world? It, it has to do with what I mentioned earlier, the erosion of the distinction between words and deeds. And, and uh, I mentioned Theo van Gogh, who was killed almost exactly 10 years ago by a, a young Muslim who was offended by what he had done or said, said in this movie. And, and, and at that time, the Minister of Justice of the Netherlands went public saying, you know, if we had had a law banning, outlawing what van Gogh was saying, he would still be alive. This is in, a, in one of the leading liberal democracies in, in Western Europe, you know, making it exactly the other way around. But my, 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 my favorite example when it comes to, you know, this erosion that makes it difficult to distinguish a perpetrator and a victim is a Russian story. Um, uh, some years ago, there was a, an exhibition at the Sakharov Museum in Moscow called Religion Be Careful. And, and, and most of the pieces of art that were exhibited there were dealing with Christianity. It's a private museum. Um, and and, and uh, within, I think, a couple of days, uh, some offended Orthodox Christians showed up and they basically destroyed the exhibition and the room of the exhibition. And the guard called the police, they showed up and they uh, arrested the perpetrators. And you would think, End of story. Unfortunately, not so. Uh, two, two weeks, three weeks later, charges were being dropped against the people 
who committed this crime and charges were being brought against the director of the museum and the curator for inciting religious hatred. And they were in fact convicted um, uh, a year or two later. That case is now before uh, the European Human Rights Court. But, but this is exactly the consequence of, of eroding the distinction with, between committing violence and saying something, expressing something offensive. A theme that emerges from your book is we should not think of this as just some violent people now and then taking out their anger, that there's a deep and fundamental challenge to the freedom of expression and the philosophy that lies behind it. Words are bullets in this world. Mm -hmm. um, so you were invested, or Yulin's Poston was investigated as part of all this, cleared ultimately, but the government was not exactly keen to take up the, the lance, is that right? Well, I think, I think uh, you know, we received the kind of support that we could expect from the government. I mean, the prime minister was under huge pressure and at the height of the crisis, maybe he gave in a little bit, but not, not, not that much. Uh, I would say broadly that uh, we could have, you know, uh, we could have had a lot less support than from our government at the time. And, and, and United States, I mean, Denmark is a close ally of the United States uh, and we sent troops to Iraq and Afghanistan. But at the beginning of this crisis, uh, the Danish government, I think, could have hoped for more support from the United States. It only came when Danish embassies were burning, started to burn down in Syria and, and, and Lebanon. Um, and, and the Danish government was also you know, pretty isolated within the European Union. Um, uh, on balance, were you satisfied with the government's response? I would say yes. But I would not be satisfied with the, with the general response of the, the European Union. The public response is not as good. And am I right to recall that, that um, there was an investigation of you in the newspaper by the government? Not, 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 well, yes, by the government, but that was, uh, you know, the prosecutor general, the general attorney in Denmark. Uh, but he dropped charges. He said, you know, in Denmark, you can only raise a case if you, the state can only initiate a case if it believes that it can win it. And he didn't believe they could win it, so he dropped it. But we had two civil cases that we won. Hmm. Today, um, do you think anyone would publish a page like that in Denmark? No, and not only in Denmark. Anywhere in Europe? No. Let's uh, but but may, maybe in, in France there is a satirical magazine, uh, Charlie Hebdo. Uh, maybe they would do it. Uh, and and we, don't, we do not publish that page uh, anymore. I mean, next year is going to be the 10th anniversary of the publication. And, you know, we have a challenge before us. Uh, how are we going to handle this? without republishing because, you know, editors in Denmark, uh, some of them are saying, well, we don't have to publish them when we have a story about this issue because we now know what these cartoons look like. And my, my reply usually is, is we also know what Obama, Obama looks like. But every time we have a story in the paper about Obama, we have a photograph of him. So, so it, I, it's, it's a way of, of hiding or rationalizing your, your fear, what's, what's the real motive. And I, 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 I've, I'm not criticizing my editor-in-chief or the CEO for not publishing. I, I'm just calling on honest for honesty. We should say we are not publishing it because we are afraid. 
And I think, you know, we have also paid, I mean, a, a, a big price in the sense that, that uh, we are a heavily guarded uh, building. I mean, you, you cannot, every morning when I go to work, I have to go through three or four fences and doors just to get to my, to my office. Um, we'll come back to that, but I can't resist asking a slightly unfair question of the group here. So imagine that we had a big easel back here and a bunch of pens, and imagine that I offered people in this room the opportunity to come up here now and draw a depiction of the prophet. How many of you would even consider doing that? Quite a few hands. How many of you would think that you would not consider doing that? We're about, well, more saying they would than wouldn't. I actually thought about requesting this actually be put up and then see if people would do it, but that seemed like too much of a stunt. But more, more people are say they're willing than not. I wonder if that's, if that's really right. I would be frightened to do that. Um, these proceedings are going online. They'll be there forever. Um, I might do it, but I'd sure worry about it, and I'd sure think hard about it. And this page is no longer available via the newspaper. It Elon's is. Elon's posting. It is. Is it online? Can I? If you are subscribed to the newspaper, you can access so it. It hasn't been suppressed. No. Uh, your life changed. Tell us about that. Well, <laughs> if we take the security side, I. Uh, I had to live with, with bodyguards and uh, for a while, but I I made a very wise decision very early on. Um, after cons consulting with the Danish police, I came back to Denmark from Russia in 2004. So I had only been living there for one year. So it was very easy to remove my name for, from official re registers and my address. So I'm I'm living you know secret address. Everything, all subscriptions are in my wife's name. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I have learned some small tricks from the police how to behave myself, uh, not to catch attention, not to, you know, leave traces, uh, to, just to be careful. Uh, are you still under guard? Uh, not, uh, you know, not, not the way I used to be, but I have, I have a permanent dialogue with uh, the Danish police, uh, and, and that will not... I don't believe that will change, but it's not, you know, it's not, uh, it's not bothering me that I think it was, it was very unpleasant to have bodyguards, uh, really. Uh, you have to con coordinate all in your life. Imagine being uh, Salman Rushdie. Yeah, yeah. Completely Terrible. underground. Yes, and Kurt Westergaard. I mean, he is now we should, 70. We should talk about him. Yeah. Yeah, yeah uh, he, this is a remarkable man. He's yeah. significantly older. Yes, he's uh, he 79 this, years old now. The cartoon of the famous cartoon is the one of the prophet with the turban with the bomb in it, and that was drawn by Kurt Vestergaard, a very prominent artist in Denmark. And he was the target of assassination attempts. Yes, several, I would say. I mean, he was he was almost killed on New Year's Eve 2010. Um, uh, offended Muslim went all the way from Copenhagen to Aarhus. That's a three-hour train drive with an axe in his uh, back and uh, he went to his private home and uh, he, he uh, smashed the window uh, and went into his house. He was there with his uh, granddaughter and he fled to the safe room 
the toilet, uh, and that's why he is alive. So he could push a button, and the police showed up within two minutes, and um, um, the man with the axe was shot in his foot, uh, and he's now serving a, a prison term. But 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 you know, several other attacks have in fact been foiled at an earlier stage. Uh, and um, and Westergaard is living with security in his backyard 24/7. I mean, the police literally they do have they have built a house in his backyard, and they they are there around the clock. They live there. Seven, 79 years old. So in that sense, he'll never be a completely free man again. Never know. What's he like? How does he feel about all this? He feels okay. I mean, he's retired, and he really I mean, he is uh, 79. He has suffered some uh, health problems. But uh, but you know he doesn't regret and and he's still uh, making drawings not for the paper anymore but uh, he's working with a private gallery in uh, in Denmark and he still travels every now and then uh, and and he's in good mood. That's that's very good to hear. Yeah. Um, you're against treaties like the wonderfully named. United Nations Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination, surely something the United Nations can do with a piece of paper. Um, you argue that the United States, which is on a different model from Europe and indeed most of the world, where hate, crime, hate speech laws are unconstitutional here, and that makes us, I think, unique. Maybe Hungary is similar. No, not in No longer? No. So we're now really the only major and Western you, and, country. And you're getting more and more unique that will protect the speaker against the offended. And you argue against European consensus that the United States is right mm -hmm. and that they are wrong. Yeah. Tell us why and tell us how that's gone over in Europe. To me, this is a very important uh, part of my book because it's, it's something that I didn't know, in fact, that I found out reading um, about it. Uh, and it, it goes back to uh, the aftermath of the Second World War. Uh, you had the Nuremberg trial, you had uh, Julius Streicher, the editor of Der Stürmer, an anti-Semitic magazine. He was among those convicted to death in 1946, and he was executed. Um, and, and, um, and, and then when uh, the members of UN started to negotiate and work out this convention on human and political rights, there was a struggle between what you can call you know, free and unfree countries. And, and Article 20.2 in the Convention on Human and on, on uh, Political and Civil Rights is the one justifying passing hate speech laws, in fact, obligating countries who um, sign this uh, uh, convention. What, what, what I didn't know was, in fact, that this paragraph was instituted into uh, the convention um, on behalf of the Soviet Union and uh, uh, on free countries while Eleanor Roosevelt, who was chairing this uh, committee at the UN and, and other Western countries were against it. Basically saying, you know, this is a rubber stamp for uh, silencing uh, dissident voice, voices within dictatorships. And that is exactly what, uh, what, what, what happened. And I think it is all. It, it, it is all, uh, and, and yeah, and an interesting thing when 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 Stalin's ambassador to the UN tried to get 
you know, harsher language into this paragraph. Stalin at the same time was about to, to ethnically, ethnically cleanse Jews uh, and, and, and the Soviet press was full of anti-Semitic uh, slurs in 1948, 49. Uh, um, uh, but it, it basically boils down to a wrong reading of the reasons behind the Holocaust. Uh, because uh, a lot of people, when I discuss these issues, would say, defending HP laws, we know what happened in Germany and Europe in the 20s and 30s, that basically evil words will sooner or later lead to evil deeds. And if, if it hadn't been for too much free speech in the Weimar Republic, uh, Hitler would never have come to power. But it turns out, in fact, that in Weimar Germany, you had hate speech, hate speech laws on the books. You had three different hate speech laws. And if you take Joseph Goebbels, Hitler's propaganda minister, he was uh, fined many times when uh, when the vice police director of Berlin, Bernhard Weiss, uh, who was Jewish, he took him to court and he won all the cases. And Julius Streicher um, was in jail twice in the 20s in, uh, in Germany for having published anti-Semitic images. And his magazine was confiscated and taken to court, I think, 36 times. So, so there is no you know, immediate correlation between hate speech laws and fighting uh, racist Yeah, the history uh, here is fascinating. Uh, you, you point out that, in fact, the hate speech laws helped the Nazis by giving them exactly. a public platform, a yes. place to argue. Exactly. And the experience with these laws is very often that they suppress speech on the part of those who are fairly reasonable and open to the kind of persuasion that public give and take allows, while they magnify the influence of exactly. people like Fred Phelps, who yes. want to go to the Supreme Court. Yes. And, and you found that in Europe. So, so you think that these kinds of conventions um, are wrong in principle, not just in practice. The hard case, of course, is, is it okay for Germany to ban Holocaust denial, for example? You know, I'm not German, so I, I will not judge the Germans. I've, I know they have a very um, horrific uh, uh, history, uh, and I know there are historical reasons for this, but I would say that, that, that the only reason for having Holocaust denial books on laws on the books would be if it equals incitement to violence. That if there is a risk that that you know doing this would uh, would 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 risk a repetition of what happened during the Second World War, but what I what I found out when I wrote my book was because I would I would have imagined that these laws has had been passed in the fifties and in the sixties, but I found out the vast majority of, the, of them were passed after the fall of the Berlin Wall, uh, which I find very strange, but there is a reason for this, and and it has to do with uh, this grievance culture, uh, although I know this is a very specific case, and there were people who wanted to protect the victims of the Holocaust, which I found, uh, you know, admirable. But it's, it's a very good example of how, you know, the way, the, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And, and, uh, and now we see that these Holocaust denial laws have in fact prompted other groups to come forward and insist on protection of their sensibilities. And the final example, it's not in my book, but this spring, the Russian parliament passed a law referring to the Nuremberg trial as the Holocaust denial laws uh, uh, do, referring to Nuremberg trial and, and, and criminalizing criticism of 
the behavior of the Soviet Union during the Second World War, which means that my good friend Antony Beaver, a British historian who wrote a book about the Soviet army uh, going into Berlin in 1945 and they were raping women and uh, 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 um, uh, committing you know, violent crimes, uh, which is a criticism of the behavior of the Soviet Union. And he would not go to Russia anymore. Uh, and it, it's this, it's this you know, principle that, that you want to protect your own version of, uh, of, of, of history. It's very, it's very basic for, the, for Russia because the victory of the Soviet Union in the Second World War is Russia's ticket to a seat at the UN um, uh, Security Council. So when people challenges their version of what happened during the Second World War, they feel it's an attempt to legitimize, delegitimize uh, their status as a great power. Uh, and it's also, it's also playing into to this identity politics, which is becoming more and more important because when a society is getting more and more diverse, you start asking yourself this question, who am I in, yeah, in this? Yeah, I, I in noticed this. that I think last year some bureaucrat in the European Union somewhere proposed that uh, the states need to begin adopting sanctions against sexist speech. So the inkblot exactly. tends yeah. to spread. Yes. It's a reported book, which I'd like to emphasize. This is not just about the cartoon crisis, uh, but Fleming goes around Europe. He does some remarkable things. He talks, goes to Russia and talks to uh, dissidents about their role and why it's important and likens what goes on in Islamist regimes to uh, communism in some ways. That's a good thing to discuss in the questions, which we should move to. But there's also a wonderful passage where you actually go to a prison and interview an Islamist who probably was getting ready to make an attempt on Kurt Westergaard's life. And that's an amazing episode. Why don't, before we go to questions, can you just tell us what that was like? Yeah, uh, well, the Danish police tried to persuade me not to go to the prison and uh, see him. And it was like a secret security operation just to get there. <laughs> but, uh, but I interviewed him for about uh, two hours um, and we had a friendly uh, conversation. This was a young man from uh, Tunisia um, who had married a Danish girl. He came to Denmark. He was in fact secular when he came to Denmark. Um, and uh, he spoke very good Danish uh, and in that way he was integrated. But then at one point he ran into a fight and uh, he beat uh, um, um, visitor to a discotheque, to a discotheque, quite severely, and he had to spend, I think, six months in prison. And after he came out of the prison, he couldn't find a job. He tried and tried and tried, and uh, and and this young man was frustrated and looking for an identity, uh, a place in life, and then he started to uh, frequent a radical mosque. And, and, and the imam there offered him this very strong identity. Uh, and then, step by step, he started to radicalize, uh, ending finally by you know, trying to become a hero if he could have killed uh, Kurt Westergaard. But what's interesting is your encounter, he's not a fierce ideologue, he's a lost soul. Yeah. He's kind of a young yes. pup. Yeah doesn't know his way in the world, and um, there's almost a kind of bizarre innocence to what's going on here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, let's go to all of you. Um, I think John is going to moderate for us. Thank you.
So, first of all, let me say that uh, our conversation today has lived up to my expectations, and I had very high expectations indeed. I am sure that all of you enjoyed it as much as I have. Uh, in terms of our question and answer period, this will be more normal in Cato terms. Just please wait to be called on, which I sh will do as we go on, uh, and wait for the microphone so that everyone in the room and our audience watching online can uh, hear your question. And we ask, do ask that you announce your name and affiliation uh, with your question, and we'll presume here that it will be directed to both people, but particularly our author. And uh, finally, please make sure your question is in the form of a question. <laughs> so let's start with the woman right here. I'm going to be rude, by the way, and sort of point at you and refer to you impersonally. So, I'm Sorry. Wendy Kaminer, and I'm self-affiliated. Hmm. Hi. It's good to have you here. Good to be here. Thank Wendy's you. Wendy's a prominent writer on this group of issues. Yeah, She's I, being I, modest. I, I read, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. It strikes me that there was, uh, and this is going to be a question, that there was a, a, a real moral dilemma for uh, publications uh, in publishing these cartoons at the time, maybe in publishing it at the anniversary. I think there was some real moral dilemmas for businesses, especially small businesses, as to whether or not they were carry these publications that had the cartoons. And the dilemma was uh, there was a reasonable expectation that some significant violence would result, not through the fault of people who are publishing, but because of all the reasons that you've explained. Yes. You know, violent intimidation works. And as I say, it strikes me that that presents a real moral dilemma for people who want to speak but understand <clears throat> the consequences. And so how do you address that? Yeah, thank you. That's a very good question. But but and I'm not uh, you know I'm I'm not criticizing those who do not publish. I perfectly well understand. But I what I'm just calling for that we should be clear about the sequence of events. And I write about that because that was one of the most frustrating um, experiences to me. You know, having endured this crisis, that a lot of media and even the best one, would write, they would phrase it, uh, uh, the cartoons that caused violence in the Middle East, the cartoons that led to the killing of 200 people uh, around the world. And even the, the New York Times would use that kind of, uh, of uh, phrasing. And uh, so, so it was as if I was directly re responsible and the newspaper was responsible for the death of innocent people. Um, and... and um, uh, so I, I think we have to be very clear that the people who commit violence, uh, they are not animals. You know, they are not robots. They are human beings like everybody else, which, which means they have a mind, they have an ability to reason, to make uh, an informed decision about how to react to one event or another. That's just what I'm calling for. So, 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 so it's the sequence of events is very clear. I mean, I would, I would argue that those cartoons were in fact a very civilized way of, 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 of criticizing and debating the issue of uh, using violence in the name of religion. Uh, uh, it's it, you know it's not calling for violence. It's not. It's in fact not uh, attacking individual uh, Muslims, even though I acknowledge that some perceive it that that way. It's about doctrine. I mean, it's about it's about uh, um, a, 
a taboo uh, for some Muslims, even not all, and I found out writing the book that, in fact, it's not a stated fact that Muslims are not allowed to depict the Prophet. It's, it's been so by way of interpretation, but the most famous, uh, the most uh, 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 learned expert on this issue, Aljek Gravar, uh, who's the, the, the leading expert on on the depiction of, uh, of religious issues within Islam, uh, said that no, no, there is no established uh, fact. So my point is just that, that uh, I, I know it is a moral dilemma, but we should just be clear that it's not out of politeness. It's not because we don't want to offend. It's because we are afraid. You, you address another audience in the book. You make a moral case. One of my favorite bits is you, you think instead of maybe sensitivity training, there should be insensitivity training. You say, for if freedom and tolerance are to have a chance of surviving in the new world, we all of us need to grow thicker skin. Um, the book isn't saying everyone has to be bold or brave. It says we at least need to know what side we're on. John, was there ever a conversation within Cato about whether it was wise, might endanger Cato employees to publish this book? Oh, yes. There were more than one conversation along that line, yes. So it's, in a, in a sense, you know, there's a, the, but you, it was a strange thing because you were having these conversations that the book itself was about. So in a sense, you were living out what uh, Fleming was warning about, actually. Was it an easy call in the end? Or you're an employer, right? You're responsible for the safety of everyone in this room. Ye yes, and uh, there's a lot of thinking about other people that I didn't know or at Cato or that, you know, that sort of thing. I would say that's why I made, went out of my way to mention the three individuals here at Cato who have been strong supporters of this all through. It would have, it could have been different, I think, at another place. Uh, and it was helped, I think, by the fact that Fleming has had an international career since uh, the book was published in Denmark and after the, and he's gone to places where he has not been particularly threatened. So we thought it was possible, but certainly one of the first conversations we had about this book was its effects. The gentleman third in and four up, or three up. Uh, my name is Stephen Shore. I don't know how much you cover about the United States, but we had the incident of this, the pastor in Florida who burned the Koran, and an earlier generation we may remember the controversy about a draft card burning and burning the American flag, which went to the Supreme Court. So we are no stranger to um, similar um, uh, attempts of, of silencing protesters in the United States. So I don't, I don't, have not read the book, so I don't know if you cover American developments as well. I do, a little bit. Don't I? Yeah. Um, you do. Yeah. Um, I think you see America, though, as, as legally kind of a bastion and a place for yes. inspiration. And, 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 and legally is the right word. Um, I, I think... Uh, in the US, the First Amendment uh, and what it implies, the right to free speech, has a special status in the US legal system. Uh, uh, the right to free speech is not balanced against any other rights. In all other constitutions around the world in, and, and in Western Europe as well, you balance the right to free speech against other rights. For instance, in the German constitution, the right to dignity uh, is perceived as more important than the right to free speech. 
Um, so, so the U.S. is very special uh, in terms of legality. But I would say that uh, in terms of social pressures, in, uh, the U.S. is worse than Europe. Uh, with, with speech codes on, on, on campuses, with big corporations that, knew, that do not want to deal, you know, with people who uh, espouse certain points of views and, and so on and so forth. Uh, in, in, in Europe, it's the other way around. People, you know, get closer to the limits of the law. Um, while, while here, um, uh, people tend to be more cautious even though the law gives them uh, wider limits than in, uh, in, in, in Europe. And then you can think about, you know, why is that? But um, uh, I think political correctness is uh, an important part of the answer. But I also think um, it is because that you have, you have a longer experience than we do in Europe with a multicultural and multi-ethnic and multi-religious uh, society. Uh, but, 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 but I think some of the same trends uh, are going on in Europe and the US with political correctness and this, you know, uh, demand that one should not offend anyone. And, and I believe it is a problem. I, I talked just yesterday to a group of university students at one of the big, very good local universities about this issue and made the cases and openly gay man, why speech codes that endeavor to protect minorities actually help us, and no sale. These, these kids all thought, well, it's just obvious that you need protections for people who are hurt by words. And, um, and, and, and what is your point? What, what is your line of argumentation making that point? Um, well, first of all, that majoritarian authorities are in fact not out to help us, and we shouldn't trust them that gay people got where we are by being outspoken. The First Amendment was our weapon, in fact, our only weapon for decades. And the second, this is the wrong thing for universities to be doing. They should be on the side of advancing knowledge, which means protecting criticism and offensive speech. And that's the point they most rejected. They say, no, we're here to get a, a credential and have a reasonably safe experience doing it. So we don't want to be in an environment that's hurtful or shocking. A very different view of the world. Greg Lukianoff of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education is here, and if he gets the microphone at some point, he'll tell you yeah. that this ethic is spreading, at least in the university culture in the no, U.S. He and I, we had, in fact, an exchange during the cartoon crisis because I think he was kicked out of uni university in Chicago for defending the publication of the cartoons. Isn't that the case? There he is. Yeah. <coughs> The oh. cannabis of that, uh, Greg? maybe want to respond. I don't know. Yes, so we'll go here and then return to the people. Well, I was actually <laughs> planning just to listen. Um, but uh, I'm Greg Lukianoff. I'm the president of FIRE. Um, I wrote a book called Unlearning Liberty, and I just wrote a book called Freedom From Speech, which talks about this cultural issue. Uh, freedom uh, in the law, uh, the First Amendment is very strong, and, and, uh, and I'm, I'm confident it's going to remain that way, at least for the, for, you know, for, for the future, for the near-term future. 
Um, but the culture has been really distressing about how it seems every other day the main thing in the news, particularly CNN, is about someone saying something wrong. Uh, with regards to what happened in, in, um, at, uh, in, in the U.S. with the Muhammad cartoons, it was really interesting on campus because I deal with students getting in trouble for really minimally offensive things all the time. You know, it's not, it, it, nothing close, close to this. Meanwhile, there were more publications of the Muhammad cartoons in student newspapers in the United States than practically any other and they and uh, we only had one or two incidents where there, where there was uh, where, where the students got in any amount of trouble. Um, but my one experience with that though was actually at NYU, um, where I tried to uh, be on a panel for the uh, for the Muhammad cartoons um, with um, a bunch of objectivists who were um, going to talk about it, and we wanted to discuss them and we wanted to show the cartoons, and we were forbidden from uh, from doing so at, at NYU. And uh, you know, President Sexton has never backed down from that. Um, but I'm very, uh, I'm very, it, it, well, one thing that is very frustrating for me, and I, I wonder how, um, we, we should talk more about, uh, about how to fight back, but I, it really, my, my, my mother's British, my father's Russian, and I get really tired of when I go um, to uh, universities and talk about hate speech codes. One of the first arguments they make is, well, other, every other country in the world has these things, and they work great. And I really want to kill that argument once and for uh, once and for all. So I'd love to talk to you some more about that. But how do you? But are we on the? Where do you think we're going to end up? It seems like the, the there's a certain sort of moral certainty to hate speech codes at the moment. You know, I, I think we, if we follow that path uh, consistently, we, we will end with a tyranny of silence. And I, I don't think that hate, hate, hate speech codes are are working well. And I, I think I think you can. There there is documentation speaking to the fact that that uh, that in in dictatorships, uh, hate speech codes are in fact used to silence dissidents. In the Soviet Union, you had a law um, criminalizing defaming the Soviet way of life. And uh, I come I came across. Uh, uh, minutes of Politburo meetings discussing Solzhenitsyn in the 70s. And it's very interesting to read uh, these recordings because they speak about Solzhenitsyn as a blasphemer. Um, uh, his criticism of, of the revolution, of, of the way they handled the Second World War, and so on and so forth. And I, but I, I, I don't believe, I mean, that, that you can point to an example where where, where um, uh, taking somebody to court for hate speech and uh, convicting them had prevented a violent crime. Uh, and, and you know, that's, that's, a rationali rationali that, that's one of the reasons for those laws. The other being that it has to do with, with, with dignity. Mm. But I, I, believe, I believe more that, it that, that the right to free speech should be connected to the sense of autonomy. That, that, that if you're not allowed to speak your mind, uh, it infringes upon what it means to be a human being. And I, I, Samarushti, I talked to him some years ago, and I think he put it very elo eloquently that, that, that this is not just about rights, it's about being a human being. Uh, we have a language instinct that animals do not have. And we, we live through stories, we grow up listening to stories, telling stories, and when you, when, you, when you limit the right to tell a story exactly the way you want, uh, you are not just committing you know, a political crime, I think. You are committing a crime against human nature. Uh, so I, 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 I cannot see how hate speech laws are, 
doing you know <laughs> uh, so well as uh, as people say. The woman on the aisle, about three or four from the top. <laughs> Catherine Wickman, and I have experience with the uh, UN Rwanda Tribunal. Um, my question is on your feelings of the guilty verdict against the Rwandan um, radio station for inciting genocide. Oh, I don't know that case in detail, but, but uh, you know, that, that is one of the examples that, in fact, uh, defenders of hate speech laws use, and they also use the... Uh, the mass killing in ex-Yugoslavia. Uh, I don't know about Rwanda, but I know about uh, Yugoslavia. You know, 100,000, 200,000 people were killed in ethnic cleansing. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that in ex-Yugoslavia, you in fact did have hate speech laws. Incitement to ethnic violence could uh, cause, I think, up to 10 years in prison. And I'm quite sure, even though I don't know for sure, that in Rwanda you would have the same kind of laws uh, at the time. Um, uh, you know, I don't know the specific situation, but I think what is important here is whether you have the opportunity to counter hate speech. And that's also the story about uh, Nazi Germany, when people refer to that example as, you know, we have to have hate speech laws in order to prevent these kind of things. But the fact of the matter is that in Nazi Germany, there was only free speech for one party. Uh, so so you, you, cannot, you cannot use that as an example against free speech. Uh, and I, my, my, my bet would be that it was more or less a, a similar situation in, in, in Rwanda. Um, I, I just don't believe that's not the way to, uh, to, to counter hate speech. And I don't think it can prevent at, uh, uh, at genocide. I tried to tell the students yesterday that the rights don't come from courts, really. They come from consensus. And if you've got a country with, say, a broad anti-Semitic consensus, hate speech laws, whatever they say, will be used against Jews. Mm. Exactly. Um, the gentleman there who is two in. We hope to get to everyone. Please be patient. Uh, Sayed from Catholic University. Actually, I'm Muslim, but uh, my question here is not uh, from viewpoint of Islam, from intellectual viewpoint. Uh, you talk about uh, freedom of expression and enjoying the freedom of expression, but I'm referring to one more obligation, intellectual obligation, uh, the how this uh, freedom of expression expression affect the extremists to encourage Muslim in a developed country against Western civilization and against dialogue between civilization and like that. I'm saying when we use the freedom of speech in this way, it hurt reformists in Islamic country to develop their idea, to uh, develop enlightenment and to help people to advance their understanding, their tolerance, and like that. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, I've, I, of course, I thought quite a bit about uh, about this, and and um, um, it it um, first I will say you 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 never know. Um, until you have a free society, what 
kind of consequences there, uh, there might be, because people cannot speak their mind. Um, and uh, at the height of the Cold War, um, uh, there was always a discussion whether criticism of the Soviet Union and a more confrontational line would uh, hurt uh, the reformers. Uh, I mean, during the time of Gorbachev, Denmark supported the Baltic countries' independence, and people said, you know, you shouldn't do that because it may, it may undermine Gorbachev's uh, um, position. And you had the same with the so-called double-track decision in the 70s when, uh, when, when NATO decided to, uh, to um, install um, Pershing missiles as a response to the Soviet Union's uh, SS-20s. And at the time, the argument was also made that this is very hurtful because it is undermining uh, the position of the, the, the uh, reformers. But it turned out otherwise, in fact. Uh, later on, uh, Gorbachev himself admitted that uh, you know, the main reasons for the uh, dissolution or, or, or the, the, one of the main reasons why he pursued this reformist path was um, uh, because uh, the Soviet Union couldn't compete anymore in this uh, uh, arms race. Uh, and the Baltic states uh, received, gained their freedom uh, very quickly. Uh, um, uh, so so I, 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 you know, I think I th that's, there are also other arguments. I mean, these cartoons were published in Denmark in a Danish context. Uh, um, and I shouldn't, I, I don't believe, of course you have to think about the consequences of what you say. I, I, I acknowledge that, but, but, but uh, you cannot, you cannot uh, um, outsource the right to edit a newspaper in Denmark to you know, people in, in, uh, in Pakistan or Saudi Arabia and what, what, whatever uh, that might be. And I can tell you, I received, and I think it's in my book, uh, I received an email from a woman in Kuwait uh, who, 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 who herself looked for answers to some of the questions that this crisis raised. And she found other answers than the official media in Kuwait gave her. And she wrote me a mail and said, oh, I... I, I misunderstood from, the, from reading in my own media, but uh, now I understand and uh, I fully support what, uh, what, what you're doing. Um, so I, I think it's, it's, uh, one should be careful not to, uh, to give in to these kind of, uh, of, 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 of pressures, although I'm not calling for being thoughtless, of course. But I think there are other examples throughout history that speaks, that tell us that, uh, uh, um, that, that, that uh, you know, being confrontational when it comes to battle of ideas uh, uh, doesn't necessarily lead to uh, bad consequences. And there is a long story in my book about the wars of religion and how, how uh, religious tolerance came about in the West. It, it was not an easy part and it was through confrontation. But finally, the, this notion of tolerance uh, took hold. The aforementioned Jason Kuznicki, two in, about halfway up. Thanks. My question is, uh, 
To what extent do you think that the internet has changed things? And I'll give an example of what I mean. Uh, some years ago, Barbara Streisand was very upset that pictures of her really luxurious beachfront house were circulating on the internet. And so she tried to have the pictures suppressed. And this was a terrible, terrible mistake on her part, uh, because when you try to suppress something, uh, that makes it juicy, that makes it exciting. And uh, not only did the pictures proliferate, but they gave their name to what is known as the, the Streisand effect, uh, describing exactly this process, where when you try to suppress something, of course, more people end up seeing it than ever before. And uh, I, think the, I think the Muhammad cartoons are a very good example of that uh, from a small newspaper, now, a newspaper in a small country, the entire world knew about them because of the fact that there was an attempt at suppression. Uh, what role do you see the internet playing in, in uh, suppression of speech and proliferation of speech? I, I, I think it's, uh, you know, it goes both ways. Uh, I think the internet is fantastic and uh, I wouldn't live without it now. And I think it's, 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 uh, it's great for the dissemination of information, of information and uh, your ability to follow events and uh, join uh, debates uh, and so on and so forth. But of course, the other thing that we experienced through this crisis was that, that, that the internet has this constituting feature that you can access information wherever you are about events that are taking place along, you know, uh, long distance, and it cre and 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 the context is being lost in transmission, uh, which means that there is a huge space for manipulation and misunderstanding, uh, and that's a fact of life, and we have to deal with that. Uh, uh, I I don't think the answer is to try to put limitations on on the internet, but we just have to be aware that. That, uh, that that is that is uh, a fact of life, and I would say about the cartoons that that um, um, uh, the fact that so few newspapers republished them contributed to an understanding that these cartoons were very offensive. Um, and I was approached by you know a lot of people around the world who wanted to know where can I see these cartoons because nobody in my country is publishing them. Uh, and when they saw them, they came back to me and said, oh, is it just that? So, so by not publishing, you also uh, sent the message that this is you know, beyond all limits. And, and I would say, you know, of course, every editor has to make that decision, but I would say that February 1st, 2006, uh, these cartoons were news item number one. Uh, and it reads on the top of the New York Times all the news that fit to print. Uh, everybody was talking about them. So I think that people should have an opportunity to judge for themselves. Did the Times publish them? No. They didn't fit? No, they didn't fit. Jason, just for what it's worth, this, the Rushdie episode occurred in 1989, long before the Internet. I, this question comes up a lot, and I tell people, technology, the medium is a sideshow. The message is the issue, and that's this idea that if you hurt someone with words, you're committing violence. Um, you don't need an internet one way or another to propagate that idea. Gentleman on the aisle, uh, forum. John, John Kunstadter, Redzima Photo. Uh, Mr. Rose, uh, I'd like to thank you for your courage 
and not only in publishing the cartoons, but uh, in the way you've approached your career in general. My question is really directed probably more at us in America, but uh, you're Danish, so I'll use Denmark as the target. Um, what does multiculturalism mean when you have no-go areas in, in Copenhagen or in other cities, uh, when you have um, a deeply rooted agriculture uh, agricultural tradition of, of uh, pork production uh, that uh, people who are new to Denmark now want to do away with? Um, what does it mean to be Danish anymore? You, you yourself uh, touched on this question of who am I, what is my identity in a... In a uh, in a world where these words like multiculturalism uh, are rife, but have, or or diversity, uh, what, what do they mean, and where is Denmark going? Thank you. Yeah, well, in fact, several questions, but I'll try to answer. Um, no, I think this is a very fundamental issue, and I, you know, I'm married to a Russian myself, um, so I live in a multicultural marriage. Um, and uh, I would never have had the opportunity to get married to Natasha if uh, we haven't had the right to cross cultures and to interact with other groups. Uh, and, I, and, I, and I think that is, that is a main challenge uh, with multiculturalism, this, which, I, which I think is a, a perverted understanding of multiculturalism, that that, that uh, every group should have a right to live isolated and that they should not interact with other groups in society. Um, and, and that's why group rights are so um, uh, dangerous in a, in a, in a, a democracy and, and especially with, with uh, the new Muslim communities in, in Europe where you have imams who insist on talking on behalf of the whole community. And, and what is happening quite often is, in fact, that, 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 um, that the rights of the individual within a group in that understanding of multiculturalism is being violated all the time. Uh, and, uh, and, and people from the majority who want to be kind to minorities, they don't see this. And I used to say, you know, the... the, 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 uh, the, the mo it's... it's, it's it, one of the most difficult things is for, you know, for gay people, for women who want an education within these Muslim communities to exercise their individual rights. Uh, because we are so much focused on taking care of, uh, of, of the group. So I think it's very important that, that you do not have, that with multiculturalism doesn't follow a ghettoization of society, that we have we are, that we have to discuss and and uh, across groups that we have a right to challenge one another. Uh, I was also confronted quite often, you know, with this, this notion: you are not allowed to publish these cartoons. This kind of criticism should have come from within the Muslim community. But basically, that means that that uh, um, you know uh, the Nazis in Germany they were a minority in 1928. They received just 2% of the vote. So at that time, following that principle, outsiders should not have been allowed to criticize uh, 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 Nazis. The same with the Bolsheviks in the Soviet Union. They were a very small group, let's say, in 1903. 
so, so it's very important that, that, uh, that outsiders can interfere and criticize and have this dialogue. And also because of these uh, um, uh, cross-cultural marriages and, and uh, you learn from one another, you, you, uh, you interact and so on and so forth. When it comes to you know, what it means to be uh, Danish, um, I, I, I think that is, uh, it's, it's, it's a fundamental problem. And in that way, Europe differs from the United States. I think it's far easier to become an American than it is to become a Dane for an outsider. And I, again, I can, I can give you the example of my wife. Uh, she, we, we got married in 1981. So she's been in Denmark for decades. We have two children that perceive themselves as Danes first and foremost, even though they also have a Russian identity. She speaks fluently Danish. She holds a Danish passport since 1991. But when you ask her, who are you? She will say, I'm Russian. Uh, and I think that had that happened in the US, she would have answered, you know, I'm Russian American or I'm American of Russian background, and so on and so forth. And it has to do with the fact that our understanding of being a Dane is far more cultural than in the US, where, where the notion of citizenship is more political. That if you, if you subscribe to the values in the Constitution and the American dream, you can identify with the American creed. While in, in Denmark, to be perceived and identify as a Dane, it has also to do you know, with, the way, with the way you dress, the way you talk, the jokes you make, uh, uh, what you eat, uh, and so on and so forth. It's a, it's a very thick cultural code. Uh, and that makes it far more difficult for outsiders to get this sense of belonging. And, 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 and when being asked this question, who are you? Uh, uh, say, I'm a Dane, when you have a Danish passport and you've been living in the country for 30 years and you speak the language fluently. Gentleman in the middle, here in the middle aisle. Feel free just to hand over the microphone to him. Hi, thank you. Uh, my name is Noah. I'm from the Law Center at Georgetown. And you talked about the political correctness that, yet yeah, it doesn't matter what the medium is, it's just part of the culture. Um, because it's getting more entrenched, you talked about the student groups, and I see that also. It stands that there needs to be some kind of change in order to shift people into thinking differently. Do you think an escalation? Do you think more publications, more reactions is the way to have that conversation? I mean, it's, it's up to every individual to decide what to do, and I, I, I don't think you can, you can issue a general rule, but that would be my approach. Um, uh, I mean, you do not get changes uh, without having conflict and without confronting these issues. But I've, I think, as uh, Jonathan kindly cited from my book, that this notion of, of, um, of thicker skins, that people understand that, that that is the price for living in a multicultural uh, democracy, that we are different, and, and therefore, from time to time, we might be offended by what other people say. And, and that we do not have this right not to be offended. That that is the price. But we are brought up, we are being taught all the time that we do have that right. Uh, and, 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 and if you play this grievance card, you have a right to tell your opponent 
that he or she should shut up. Uh, and, I, and I think that's, that's very, I think it's, it's, it's really a, a, a dangerous trend. Uh, and it's, it's undermining, uh, you know, the, the, the democratic uh, values of our society. Gentlemen, three rows up near the wall. Uh, thank you. My, na my name is Hermes Levy. And my question has to do about uh, <clears throat> what do you think, since you have publicized this, uh, the cartoon, because uh, there is a situation many of us are not aware. You can find coded in the Bible, as well as in the Quran, uh, a sign of an ongoing war between the East, between the East and, and, and the West. Uh, since the publication had your uh, perception changed, did you think, do you think that this, uh, uh, what you did, uh, even though you didn't, you didn't think inside this concept of war, do you think that it's, uh, it, it can be, uh, it, can, it could have been perceived as an expression of this ongoing and silent war between Islam and the West? I think I didn't get the answer, but it was something about war between Islam and the West. Yes. Um, I mean, I don't think in those uh, categories. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I can precise. I said many people don't know. It's about consciousness. Yeah. Uh, a silent war is is ongoing <coughs> between the West. Yes. And Islam, but yes. we don't. Yeah. Mm, yes, we are not aware of it. <coughs> what I want to try to see is. From the time you did your publication until now, did your perception of uh, what this was taken did change, or did you have the same uh, impression? <laughs> no, I, I had a crash course in Islam, of course, uh, <laughs> following this uh, event. But I, 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 I believe that uh, you know Muslims are as different as uh, all other people, and I believe that it's. Uh, I mean, um, you, have, you have similar problems that I experienced in this case with Hindu nationalists in uh, India, and you had it, have it with the Russian Orthodox Church in Russia, as I, I cited. Although I will not, you know, stay away from the argument, there is a real problem uh, with, um, um, with, with Islam. Uh, and, and with the secularization of, uh, of, of Islam and uh, uh, the doctrine. And I think it's founded, it's, it's rooted in the fact that, that if you take the Bible um, and the, um, uh, you know, you, you, the, 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 the people who wrote the Bible, they are perceived as human beings. And therefore they are texts created by human beings, and therefore they can be challenged and criticized by other human beings. The Quran is being perceived as the word of God uh, that was, you know, given to uh, Muhammad. Uh, and, and therefore, uh, Muslims are far more, feel far more intimidated to challenge the text. Uh, and therefore, you have not have this, this kind of theology as uh, you have in, in Christianity. But that's just one you know, one, one point. I think you are speaking to the fact that, that in the Quran you have this, the house, of, the house of war and the house of Islam, and the house of Islam shall take, you know, the war to the house outside Islam in order to, 
turn you know the whole world into an Islamic world. But you know it's that's that's the case of uh, well, that is basically what monotheistic religions uh, are about universal monotheistic religion that you would like to uh, see them prevail uh, all over the world. Uh, but of course, you do have different uh, experiences and different levels of, of, of tolerance. But but I base I, I think that we should be more, we should pay more attention to what we share as human beings. Uh, you know, be they Christians, uh, uh, atheists, uh, Muslim, Buddhists, uh, heterosexual, homosexual. We we share more as human beings than divide us. And 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 this trend that I have been talking about. Uh, you know, identity politics, where, where we try to box people in and certain features of, their, um, their, of, of them as human beings are being perceived as more important and makes them really, really different from other people. I think, I think that's, uh, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's a wrong way to go. Even though I understand that we all need, you know, to understand ourselves, we need an identity of who we are, and we want to be affiliated with, with you know, with certain groups uh, uh, in order to to find our place in the world. But I don't think that we, we should forget the fact that we share far more than dividers. One last question. Uh, I believe the woman in front here. Sorry if we didn't get to you. Thank you. I'm Carrie Deffer at the Center for Corporate Integrity. You mentioned Germany has a dignity law. What is the benchmark for, dis for determining what is dignity? Second question is, would you hyperlink to an image of Muhammad from another publication? I, I didn't hear that. The second one? Would you hyperlink to an image hyperlink. of Muhammad? Oh. To an image of Muhammad in a paper elsewhere in the world? I, yeah, I, I don't know the answer to the second question. It depends on... On the context, uh, I will not make uh, you know a, a final statement on that, but I, I I would not exclude it. Why? I mean, if if it's relevant, uh, I would not hesitate to do it. Um, given you know, I, you would have to pro and, and con, and uh, I, I you know, you have to come up with a specific example to get a specific answer about dignity. You know, there's not a dignity law as such, but but it's the first article of the German. Constitution outlines, you know, uh, dignity as the most important value, and when it comes to this issue of free speech, it um, it it implies that um, that the one who is the target of speech has a right to influence what we have a right to say, uh, while in the American tradition. Uh, um, the the uh, the one who is a target of speech has no right to influence what uh, what a speaker would like to say, no matter how offensive it may be. But in in the European tradition, um, uh, the one who listens to what other people say, uh, referring to their sense of dignity, can go to the court and say, you know, this is undermining my dignity. So I. I will. I will. I would like to uh, see this person go to jail or being fined because he said something offensive. So, so, so it's 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 more dialogical, I would say. While, as I said, mentioned earlier, the sense of autonomy, uh, the individual's right to say whatever he wants, 
is, is more grounded in the American tradition than in the European one. Also, and that's funny, that's, I didn't know that, I found out when I wrote my book, we have this honor culture in Europe. If you go back to the Middle Ages, you could be challenged. If somebody hurts your honor, you can take them to a duel uh, and either get killed or kill the other one. And, and this sense of, of protecting your dignity is deeply rooted also in this uh, culture going back to the Middle Ages in, in Europe. I would like to begin to end our forum today by uh, thanking John Rauch for coming today. Remember, his book is Kindly Inquisitors, out with a new afterword, all of which merits your attention. And then also our author, Fleming Rose and the Tyranny of Silence, now out from the Cato Institute, a very important book that I hope you will read. And remember, also, if you buy a copy today, Fleming will be happy to sign it for you uh, after the, this or uh, up at lunch. And Speaking of lunch, uh, the lunch will be held at the second level at the George Yeager Conference Center. So you just go down to the spiral staircase at the front of Cato, go up the stairs, and then come back toward the back again. You'll notice you'll be able to see the, uh, where the lunch will be held. The restrooms are on the second floor. They're on your way to lunch. Look for the yellow wall. And from me, thank you very much for coming today. <laughs> <laughs>